chested man A pocket full of posies with a hand rim full of sandalwood Waiting for the train that never comes Hello, dear listener. Welcome back to the Eagle's Nest. It's been a little while. Sorry about all that. <laughs> Hopefully, your world is safe and well, slowly coming back to normality. If not already, then. Hi, I'm Peter. I'm Dave. And we are We're Eagle's Dear. And this time we're reviewing issues of the 1980s run of the IPC comic Eagle from issues 104 to 107, which cover a date from the 17th of March to the 7th of April, 1984. Excellent. And for those of you who were around at the time, in America, Kate and Ally starts airing on CBS. Big fan. Starlight Express opens at the Apollo Theatre in London. Managed to avoid it so far. Part of Central Park is renamed Strawberry Fields in honour of John Lennon. I remember that. And a Soviet sub crashes into the USS Kitty Hawk off the coast of Japan in a very Mannix-esque twist of fate. Watch the space, yeah. And uh, peace protesters are evicted from Grenham Column. Uh, Grenham Grenham Common. (laughs) Try saying that after a double martini. Yeah. Well, was it the first, or had they been camping there for a while, or...? Uh, Wikipedia doesn't say the summary I'm looking at. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) So far, so very 80s, Dave. Well, sticking, Peter, with 80s news... Let's kick off with... News team, the newsiest team, Alan Hebden and Jose Ortiz. Yes. News team have a new assignment. Jacques Dubois of Tele News Luxembourg wants them to cover the imminent eruption of Mount Orson, Colorado. Plenty of action close-ups as possible. Yes, very polite Luxembourgian producers. <laughs> yes. We would appreciate coverage of. Yes. Even if his name is a bit dubious, Dubois. Dubois, indeed. <laughs> close-ups are possible. Yeah, right. Yeah, why not? <laughs> So, Jerry, CB, Kurt and Rats fly over the nascent volcano, camera operator Kurt leaning out from their high plane to look the beast in the eye as the slopes glow with lava. The pilot wants to fly back, but Jerry bribes his bravery. The US Geological Service order them out of the airspace for their own safety, but Jerry ain't having it. The mountain blows. Sorry, I'm condensing somewhat. <laughs> Kurt, Kurt tumbles out. Nine! But his chute opens, and he keeps filming. Good old Kurt. But CB and Jerry still need to get him off Mount Orson. So as the cowardly rats looks on in exasperation, they bail out and shoot down to Kurtz's landing spot. Dave. I was going to say, I'm not too sure about the stability of parachutes during a volcanic eruption. I'm not too sure about even flying near a volcano, although I understand helicopters are worse. Well, again, that's why they're being warned off, Peter. You know, there is some artistic integrity here, I suppose. <laughs> yes, just... Rats orders the plane down and is met by an angry mob labelling him yeller. Now back on Mount Orson, the three others of News Team are reunited as the hillsides shake. They need to get to safety. They must walk. Walk or die. <laughs> Amble for your lives is the note I've got. Hang on, we're trying to outrun lava in a fiery hellscape, Peter. Done by Ortiz. It's just House of Damon again. It's <laughs> Except this time it's for reals. Cajoled by strangers, Rats steals a nearby cover truck and makes for the mountain, now several miles away, while the volcanic ground continues to shake around Jerry, CB and Kurt. They cross a tree over a lava stream, and are near the point of exhaustion, when a cover truck arrives, Rats has found them! Holy unaccountability! Well, no, I've made a note, Peter. Now, I'm assuming that Rats was able to track Kurt's TV transmitter signal, uh-huh. and that's he was a- how he was able to find them so fast. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> but then, an avalanche happens. All rocks puzzle the truck. Everyone but Rats bails out again, and Rats in the truck rumbles off helplessly down the hill. The others chase, but lose him. But incredibly find him again. On the porch of a cottage, mug of coffee in hand. What gives? Turns out he's been rescued by old Jeb, a good kind of loner mountain man who's living off-grid and in the presence of the volcano. No madness here. He has a nearby mine to shelter or swelter in. So they head there. <laughs> Jerry's seeing the opportunity for a human angle. I ain't here to no dang Pompeii. <laughs> <laughs> ain't here to no pyroclastic explosion. <laughs> He sets Kurt to hook up a uh, live feed, and as the ground crew begin to mourn the brave fallen crew of News Team, the feed crackles on their screens with Jerry interviewing the old man of the mountain. The footage is incredible. 
and all of America and Luxembourg, presumably, can watch it. And then the feed goes dead. Surely that's it for news team. But two days later, a copter finds the mine. News cameras trained on the survivors. Push off! This is news team exclusive. Ah, <laughs> uh, they made it. Oh dear. No time for uh, self congratulations. We've got a news assignment. Ken Markstein of Global News London requests news team go to the Himalayan Muslim Kingdom of Amuristan for a coronation of its king. Amuristan is between China and India, so very topical. But that's not the story. There's a coup. General Zul Khan brings in tanks and takes control. He's obviously of the Amisturani army. A UST news team fly out. Not our news team, obviously. But their plane is shot down and out of the sky. News team are in trouble. It's time to take back the news to be continued. Next time, a daring mountain climb to deadly danger. Yeah, next time, caught between Iraq and a hard place. <laughs> I was going to say, so the despotic leader tries to close borders and destabilize and constrain the world's press. Mm. Mm, mm. I got sort of a fifth horseman flashbacks to this too. Uh, yeah, it does have that feel. Although, must the other thing is the art for the Am- Amuristan story is not Boatis, it's by Bimjo. Bimjo? I didn't even notice. Good lord. No, it's a very Ortiz style. Yeah. But we have a new artist for this different story. That reminds me of Helltrekkers in 2000 AD. They, they did the same. Ortiz did the first strip, and then, oh, Raymond Solis, possibly, mm-hmm. or somebody like that. And you could barely see the join. Yeah, Ortiz will return for News Team fairly regularly. I think it's just a bit of a a blip in the production schedule. Uh, But the story for this month is definitely the uh, homage to Mount St. Helens, which Mm. if we'd been on a proper schedule, non-pandemic related (laughs) timeline, would have been at about 40 years of our intended recording date, having happened on the 18th of May, 1980. Oh, goodness. The old um, logo was also probably a reference to Harry R. Truman, one of the mountain people who stayed on Mount St. Helens and uh, lost his life in the eruption or went missing and never found in the eruption. So that uh, is all pretty topical for at least Mm. within the five years of writing. And certainly within living memory of your average eagle reader. The only other thing I did note, Peter, is um, they're using a very special transmitting camera for this story. It's called an ING camera. Which, when you keep on reading it in the script, it sounds like a word's been deleted. It's, can you fix the... In camera. camera. (laughs) Get that in camera strung up. Yeah. (laughs) I wonder. I wonder. I didn't write down what what it's an acronym for, but I just kept on noting. What things you notice with older eyes. Yeah, it sounds like Hebden Science to me. Sheltering in a mine, presumably it wasn't a coal mine. Yeah, it doesn't sound too sensible. Well, uh, okay, Hibden's okay. It is Hibden. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll <laughs> let that one go. Ain't heard no dang Pompeii. No. <laughs> so, but speaking of backing yourself into a corner, Pete, it's the fists of Danny Pike, story by D. Spence, art by John Burns. Previously on Danny Pike. Now European champion Danny is set to take on the American boxing world by storm. But there's a catch. Danny's in love with a dashing Miss Ashley. And Danny fears young love's hopes are dashed by transatlantic travel. What a catch. Well, I'm sure she is. This time, trainer Arthur puts on the hard word. And it's the girl or his career. So Danny tells Jane he's got to go. Arriving in New York, Danny meets Arthur's US equivalent, Abe Shapiro who runs a boxing training camp and has arranged for his next bout against Nate Fowler, a real up-and-comer. 17 fights, 17 knockouts. Is that it for Jane? Jane shall return. Is that it for Jane? (laughs) Have you ever read comic books? (laughs) Well, I've not read Jane. (laughs) The blonde Jane in comic books could also be a reference to the 1940s comics of uh, Jane. Yes. Who was, would entertain the troops by having her clothes regularly fall off, but um, it's not going to happen in evil. No. Oh, and Abe's also arranged Danny's new sparring partner, Alvin Sharkey. 
blinged up to his beady eyeballs, Danny's nemesis and world boxing champion Sharky arrives and the trash talk starts flying. At $5,000 for a three round training bout, Arthur thinks that's money well spent just to fire Danny up. Though Sharky himself has another plan, planning to take this opportunity to knock the wind out of Danny's up and coming sails and show him who's boss. And before long, the two champions face off in the ring. Sharky scores strikes fast and early, but Danny isn't the raw rookie who last encountered the shark and comes back swinging with precision. And then the trash talk starts again. Sharky starts pummeling Danny, promising a lesson and taking a whipping. Abe tries to stop the sparring session, but Arthur holds him back. This is just what Danny needs to get his head back in the game. Danny rallies and suggests Sharky watches his mouth before landing a blow right in the kisser. <laughs> Training bout round two starts and this time it's different. Both boxers focusing on form, knowing their taunts score little. But it's Sharky who finds his first opening, landing a powerful blow to Danny's side and then to his chin. Danny is down and waits resting for an eight count and then notices Sharky crowding in waiting to finish him and rises fast to land a solid uppercut knocking Sharky down on his ass. <laughs> Sharky comes up roaring and as the training bout descends into a brawl Abe leaps in to break it up. Peter. Yes. You were going to comment on how like the Karate Kid this is. Yes, <laughs> yes very much. <laughs> I don't have many notes for the story because it's just all action and that, I mean that's pretty much it. I mean, it it's just all action. Yeah. yeah. True, yeah, it doesn't let up. Mm. Sharky's not having this, and the two fighters are hauled apart. As they head off to separate changing rooms, trainer Lyle laments 5k was a lot to pay for a round and a half, but Arthur is more than happy with this outcome. Natch. <laughs> Training for the fight against Nate Fowler starts, and Abe identifies the man's key weakness. A lot of wild punches and a bad temper, but Danny won't resort to taunts to rile his opponents. What do you got here, Arthur? A gorilla with principles already? <laughs> Abe Shapiro is pretty much a stereotype of an American boxing manager. Yeah, yeah, Burgess mirror to fall the way through. Oh, yes. There follows such a fast and furious tranny montage, I thought we'd slipped into Crow Street Comp for a minute before <laughs> we cut to the night of the fight with a special guest commentator, Sugar Ray Robinson. Woo! Are you sure this isn't Crow Street? <laughs> it's a different sugar rate. We established that. Fowler comes out with a wild haymaker, which Danny sidesteps and strikes with a pile driver. Fowler is down! It's good night, Nate, in record time! Next time, Danny meets the man they call the animal. George Foreman? <laughs> I know I've complained about the fights taking a while, but crikey, that was a quick run through this one. Just solid... Punches, 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 action, action, action. I've got my Georges mixed up, of course. The animal was George Steele, as I'm sure Conrad would be able to remind me. And that's WWF, not boxing. Okay. Hey, go local sports team. Go sports team. <laughs> Stirring work by Burns on this run of episodes. Yes, yep, yep. The art leaps off the page, and all the characters have very definitive looks to them. Sharky looks very predatory and shark-like in quite a few of his shots. Birds has this tendency to give him very heavy set eyes, so his, his, mm. his, his actual, you know, the whites of his eyes are just little pinpricks in this, mm. you know, these two cavernous orbits. Yeah, distinctive, as you say. Yeah, and the, the interlude is really good to give us a, a recap into the, what Danny's story is mm. as we get re-engaged in his career after a couple of months of romantic sidelining. Yeah, watch the space. Jane will return Excellent. with her kit on. Excellent news. And speaking of news... And maybe not so excellent. <laughs> it's the return of... Streetwise! By GFD, yeah, you know me. Art by Jay Vernon. Someone is turning over the news vendors of East London, I think. And Streetwise has been assigned. Armed with a new spiky do and studded leather collar. Oh, he's nice. <laughs> Our hero encounters... <laughs> A gang of ruffians sitting on Korean war vet Shellshock Shaw. <laughs> I'm going to have problems with his name, I can tell. <laughs> Who can look after himself, actually. Getting the upper hand, Wise loses the gang, but finds a clue. A £50 note dropped by one of the youths. That's a lot of green for your average team. <laughs> Back at Divisional HQ, the team is being briefed by Sir John Nelson from the Home Office. Nelson wants faster results, so mobile patrols... 
are being assigned cue cards. They're the order of the day, and there's more. Botham has been assigned. Are we going to have to play the Sethra and Steel theme at the start of the story? Let's be what we're talking about. Yeah, so Botham, um, beat PC done slightly bitter, but he's no wise. No. Meanwhile, Wise has spotted a potential clue that we, and I, I swear the artist, haven't really. Nelson was wearing the same X-Forces tie as poor old Shellshock Shaw had around his overcoat. His back. His back, yeah. So it was a makeshift belt, I guess. Mm. What gives? Next episode, both of them is wrapped at the new cue cars, state of the art Cortinas by the looks, and skeptical Wise follows along. They chase some Ram Raiders in Hammersmith, and then follow a radio call to Crimea Street. A uh, Crimea Street. Where <laughs> Ooh, another... what a giveaway! <laughs> uh, where another news vendor's being assaulted. I haven't seen this much news vendor violence since that Trump rally. <laughs> <laughs> it's a new, new definition of meet the press. Um, meet the press. <laughs> Uh, the cow's boxed in, so Wise hoofs it, manic style, and reaches the sock, which is the scene of a crime, mm-hmm. in your jargon, where Shellshock has beat them to it again. Cops not needed. Both of them arrive to tell Wise he's to report back to base. Seems Sir John isn't a fan of the actual plod actually plodding, and for his footwork, Wise is demoted to Detective Constable. Like both of them, the colleague <laughs> he abandoned. Wise sulks off on foot as the press arrive with questions about Shellshock. Back on the carriageway, Botham's getting a quarter pounder when Wise Product has... Product placement! <laughs> yes. Other burgers are available, this is. Uh, this is probably a big deal, I guess, in the UK? I'm not sure. Okay, it's, it's, it, it does sort of stand out a bit. <laughs> mm, you know, advertising wimpies was a thing mm. in these comics. Uh, well, when did McDonald's make it to the UK? Answers on a postcard. Hello, Dave from the future here. The first McDonald's in the UK opened in 1974 in Woolwich, whereas the first Wimpy Bar opened in 1954 in central London. Anyway, back to Streetwise. Chicka chicka. Yeah, but if you're advertising it, would you have both and go off and get one? He's very much the... Yeah, that's true. Joe fries with that character. Yeah, yeah. He's the cowboy of the, of the corral, really. Although... He doesn't protest so much. You know, he, he complains that Wise is off doing things and he complains that Wise is a loose cannon. He doesn't actually do much other than follow when Wise comes up with a hunch or two. I think Botham's completely in his element here. He's loving the aircon. He's mm. loving not have, having to run around. He's probably got a probably got a cup holder in that car. Uh, <laughs> and uh, space for his quarter pounder. Although, back to the quarter pounder, it gets knocked out of his hand. Because uh, Weiss hears the radio report another news vendor being attacked in Balaclava Square. They're laying that on a bit thick. Carry on. <laughs> I know. And uh, Botham loses his quarter pounder as he's getting into the car. The... Loses his lunch. That's yeah. his lunch. That's it. That's lunch. So they head to Balaclava Square, which is a handy waste ground nearby. Sweeting it to the allotment, Botham and Wise drive up some steps after the footpads and brain them with their car doors. The ruffians sneer as they're led away confident they can lawyer up and out of trouble and wise again reasons they must be hired heavies but hired by who as the vendor is being stretched away a rather serious one this time shellshock appears again and berates wise's slow arrival you know dave at this stage i was wondering whether shellshock was putting them all up to it if we want to talk about fantasy casting i had shellshock in my head played by windsor davies yeah. No, listen here. Yeah, he's he's got the same sort of wee Adandar Thompson moustache. Yeah. Um, he's certainly supposed to be sort of you know of, of that old generation of grit. Sergeant Major, sir. Wind him up, and he starts reminiscing of his career in war days and being deserted by his captain, Storm, under heavy fire. That night, the newspapers report Sir John's appointment to H.O. and a hunch drives Wise and both them to the waste ground again, where Shellshock said he'd be. They jack up and dirty the car to look like an abandoned joyride and stake the waste ground out. All of society seems to pass by, including some kids who have bricks in the car. Extra dose of authenticity. Mm-hmm. As the public collect Shellshock's papers and ignore the car, largely, sooner or later, a black late model crawls up, and Shellshock is called over to meet Sir John Storm Nelson, his old commander. Having his promotion, the former deserters come to silence his last witness. 
but Wise chucks a brick at the bayonetting bureaucrat, and he's bungled. Result, Wise gets his rank back, and the Home Office finds Shellshock's pension, which they seem to have lost over several years, which is now enough to buy a shop. The end. The end. So, um, uh, Shellshock becomes your actual belligerent news agent. <laughs> Selling eagles to miners, yes. yes. I've got to acknowledge that the tie thing is well done. It's all hidden in plain sight, and mm. you know, but somehow the story just feels a bit flat. And I've made the note about three times in there you've solved it, Wisey, don't get distracted. Because they could have done this in two episodes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the tie, for heaven's sake. I had to go back to episode one and say, oh, yeah, there it is. It's a wraparound. And, I mean, regimental ties, you could probably pick them up anywhere in, in a clothing bin or a jumble sale. Or, oh, wow. You know, my, my old school tie I keep on seeing in various things. Oh, um, do, do you remember the movie um, Kick-Ass? Yes. You remember when Hit Girl dresses as a schoolgirl to break into somewhere? No, yes. She's wearing my old school tie. <laughs> right. Certain ties of certain patterns mm. will repeat mm. around mm. the world. So, uh, I don't know. Weird, of all the things to remember. I was intrigued that for all of the artistry, you know, this is the third drawn Streetwise trip, I think. And, mm -hmm. and once once Streetwise went from photo to, to illustration, it sort of took a bit of a leaf out of Doom Lord's book, really, and decided to go big, go cinematic. Mm -hmm. that, that, that story set on the Thames and Wise's on boats and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Here, we're Sven Arnsteining it, really, on some waste ground. <laughs> I've got to know, and I don't know if you'll agree with it, the only character who looks like he should is Botham. Mm. Botham is drawn to be slightly pudgy and beardy. and It's a good Botham. It's, it's beardy Botham, as you say, yeah. But it's a good likeness. But everyone else's Uncle George is sort of remarkably cookie cutter, wise as lantern jawed hero, even if he's got a spiky haircut in for his disguise. And listeners to the the oh he looks fit. Yeah, that's uh, that's for some girls in the background in the the script. That's not a personal opinion <laughs> of the management, no. and it's not my voice. But it has been remarked on a blog I read recently that the the, uh, the blogger wondered whether they were sort of inserting those little cutaways just to sort of remind us that yeah actually this is the same wise because the likeness is so not wise mm. <laughs> mr malin in in fairness to mr malin if you think of otto sump and things with like judge dread it's oh, the come grotesques on. He's, that he's easy on the your mind yes. no 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 if you're if you're actually clean cut and and quite presentable mm. it's hard to catch you in line art mm. Mm. you know you don't have a distinguishing feature yeah at least when it was a photo strip we could take the piss out of it better here yeah. it's just a little flat. Yeah, yeah, definitely two-dimensional. Speaking of some lack of depth, or maybe getting out of your depth, <laughs> it's, it's Crow Street Comp. <laughs> Previously on Crow Street Comp, it's exam time at Crow Street Comprehensive, and all of our school chums are anxiously contemplating their futures. They're growing up so fast. We have what can only be described as a future employment montage, mm. the likes of which have not been seen since Tim Talbot wished apocalyptic <laughs> nightmares on number 10. Yes. Who's laughing now, Peter? Who's laughing now? <laughs> Carry on. Only normal kid in the school, Alan Bates, has joyously won an apprenticeship to the local sports team. Go local team! <laughs> But pragmatist Clobbergates muses, it's a tough business football. He'll be on the scrap heap by the time he's 25. Creeper is looking to progress up the washer upper ladder at his local cafe. Rich kid Paul Carstairs is feeling the pressure from Pater to get good grades for university, don't you know? While wannabe upper class family, the Bristows, just don't want young baby Benjamin to show them up with the neighbours. What would the neighbours think, Peter? Oh, screw the neighbours. <laughs> I've got to say, the girls' futures look rather grim. They look about as grim as creepers. No, I was going to say, meanwhile, Boo Boo has lined up a summer job at the local hairdressers, mm. while Hot Lips Linda bemoans she probably won't be a fashion model, but will probably end up serving tea in a grotty office. After a tough set of exams, Frankenstein Wills considers running away to sea like his dad did in the old days. Clearly this is in a universe where the Falklands War didn't happen. <laughs> while Clover rebuffs ideas of joining the army. It's worse than school. Sergeant Majors yelling at you, do this, do that. Wouldn't mind a go on one of those modern tanks, though. Oh, right. Tower King callback. Yay. Yay. 
So to break the exam tension, Mr. Babbitt proposes a weekend away hiking in the mad wild hills out behind the school. Yeah. There's something rather wrong with the geography of the last two panels. There's something rather wrong all over. I mean, I've got Sugar Ray's <coughs> single entendre to Hot Lips talking yes. about having a weekend away. Oh, I, I hadn't actually read it that way. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's I fine. read it like 11 year old me would. Yeah, yeah, you're probably safest too. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <clears throat> Issue 105. Yeah. For someone who's not into the army life, Clobber manages to yomp successfully over the middle Eglin's wild terrain, and after a day's worth of slogging over hills and dales, Babbitt and the boys manage to find their way to the next hiking hut when they suddenly realize they've lost Baby Bristow. And then the phone rings. Bristow has found his way to a swanky hotel. <laughs> hunt for the wilder people, this ain't. That is a king move. <laughs> Clobber and Creeper and Sugar Ray find their way to the Imperial Wilderness Hotel to mm. join Bristow. I love Bristow sort of lounging in the lounge. He seems to age about two years in posture alone. Photos <laughs> <laughs> on the Facebook page, people. And there they cause absolute havoc with a pool table and all get thrown out. Of course. The next day, the rest of the rural rambling roaming resumes, and Clover is chased by a cow. The fawn, the fawn is after him, sir. I like that. The party arrives at their destination, a quiet rural train station where they wait, and wait, and wait, before discovering they've missed the last Sunday train. Maybe we do need the sapphire and steel theme. <laughs> <laughs> it's the one with the train station. <laughs> <laughs> Hunter-gatherer Clobber Gates fills a wild chocolate vending machine and everyone settles in for the night in the station waiting room. God. While searching for fuel for the fire, Clobber and Creeper find an old lamp and a railway uniform and think up a killer wheeze for their chums. It's elaborate. Creating a thick morass of smoke and steam by destroying heritage railway property. <laughs> Clobber dresses as a ghostly station master, warning of the impending arrival of the ghost train. <laughs> Not the Arthur Askey one. No. For listeners of a certain age, Clobber does seem to be singing the Doctor Who theme to make it sound really scary. <laughs> I wrote that down too. Woo! <laughs> but lo, the kids are saved by a wandering local who has arranged for a bus to get them all home. As everyone marvels at this supernatural encounter, a suitably sceptical clobber manages to scam the rest of his class into thinking he actually has the second sight by reading playing cards reflected in the bus window. Yeah. And the next day at school, arranges to set up a fortune-telling store for 20p a pop. Next time, a look into the future courtesy of clobber. <laughs> Can I just say, mm. walk or die it isn't. No. It's more like walk and whinge. <laughs> I once again want to state for the record that I believe this strip is clobbers to lose. Yeah. He, he really is the most interesting person in it. I mean, Creeper's good, but... Um, Only as a straight man. Yeah, I know. He's got the sympathetic angle, but everybody else is just really fading into the background. You're laughing with clobber. Yeah. Everyone's becoming a little thin and implausible. Mm. <laughs> Speaking of... Speaking of implausible, Peter... <laughs> It's the Amstrung, sorry, Amstor computer. Dave, what do you think Amstor stands for? Is it amateur story? <laughs> I thought there was, no, was it, wasn't it Professor Amstor in the first episode? But but having said that, I don't think it's going to be anything else. Maybe it's the Amster computer. You open the you open the side and there's a little wheel with a furry thing running around. They, they have the frenetic energy of a rodent on a, on a wheel. <laughs> Carry on. Story number 960518, Fall from Fortune. Programmed by Damien Johnston of Leeds. Story by Keith Armstrong. Art by Jay Stokes. Jewel thief Harry Cummings has just cracked a safe and stolen a large diamond. But he's been rumbled, and with the agility of not a cat burglar at all, mm. he escapes across the rooftops, falling through a skylight and into a vat of cotton wool, where he loses the diamond. He eludes the cops, only to sneak in later, where he discovers all of the cotton wool, the stone, and presumably all the broken glass from the skylight have been used to stuff children's <laughs> teddy bears. 
but which one of the hundreds lining the walls <laughs> is it? Can you bear the tension, Peter? <laughs> oh my god, the, the glass and the teddy bears, that's horrific. Can I just say, get stuffed, Amstock. <sighs> I didn't mind it, it seemed like a bit of a spin on the old joke of, you know, good news, bad news, good news, bad news. You know, mm. the guy jumps out of a plane, bad news, didn't have his parachute, good news, he lands on a haystack, bad news. It was a pitchfork in the haystack. Good news, he missed a pitchfork. Bad news, he missed the haystack. <laughs> Even though it's a steady landing. Anyway. I thought the second story was better, Peter. Yes, a breath of fresh air. That's story 19700, programmed by Ewan Reed of the Isle of Isla, and written by A Stone and drawn by M. Dory. It's Mike Dory. Commuter Brian Butlin enjoys the fresh morning air as he makes his way past an allotment burn-off through exhaust-fogged streets to his smoky train to work. Over the lunch hour, he reads the paper and sees an ad for 2080 Future Shock Staple, an urgently needed human guinea pig for an experimental time machine. He applies, otherwise there's no story. His health is good, and medieval history is remarkable. And it's into the time machine and back to the past, Brian goes. Awaiting England's once green fields and vast forests, Brian bids farewell to the modern day and steps outside into the Middle Ages. He takes in the fresh air and collapses with a heart attack. The fresh air has given him the bends, and now he's dead. The end. <laughs> oh, I like this one. I remember it fondly. And Mike Dory's art, if anyone who remembers um, Mark Zero, mm. is suitably grimy for the polluted London of the present day. I've got to say, um, the, the, the early shot of Brian Butlin, sort of almost full page, taking a great big whiff of English air. And he looks for all the world like Kenneth Williams. Photos on oh. the Facebook page. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> so, Dave, as the scientician of the team, is this Bobbins? I would say it is probably very much Bobbins. Although the pollution in London, I mean, I lived in London for many years and... Yes, you don't want to look into your hanky after you blow your nose on the tube. And I would assume it was worse. And if you think about the great smoke in London of 1957, so, I think yeah, it was. Yeah, 57, yeah. The killer fog. It may be bobbins, but it rings true. True bobbins. As opposed to a story which might be nearly true and just reads like bobbins. Mm. But I've got to say, I mean, the Middle Ages, it must have fear ponged. Oh, yes, yes. I mean, especially if you're in London. Hmm. All those open fires. No one washing. No indoor plumbing. Here, we watched several series of Game of Thrones and occasionally pausing to say, I bet they really hum, these people. <laughs> not so sexy now, are you? <laughs> no, they're definitely not perfect specimens. <laughs> Let's hear about perfect specimens. The perfect specimen. Selected by Nicholas Chalmers of Avon, and once again the story by A. Stone, and once again the art by Mike Dory. Woo. Arizona, 1888. No one would have believed in the later decades of the last century. <laughs> Alien intelligences would have been watching a prison chain gang and slowly and steadily drawing their plans against them. There we go. A convict named Bull was suddenly and miraculously released from his change and he goes on the run and murders one of his guards before stealing a horse and then gets whisked away by an alien spaceship taken as a perfect specimen for an alien chain gang. <laughs> he is indeed a perfect specimen. It's, um, yeah, it's a thing. Um, <laughs> I guess, you know, if you're a kid who likes cowboys and likes aliens... You've got yourself a strip there. I suppose so, and, and again, Mike Dury makes it look good. It's just, again, looking at it as, as, as a more mature reader. Mm. And they must have ponged as well. <laughs> there is something a little bit sort of contrived about it all. Something a little bit fishy. Well, I was going to say something a little bit hammy. Well, i got something a little bit fishy, and that's an issue 107, and it's called Star Beast. Not The Star Beast, but Star Beast. Uh, programmed by Martin Gammon. Ah ha 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 Nice one, Centurion. Martin Gammon of Surbiton, and it's story number 2911, if you're keeping up. Uh, written by Jay Trivelin, and art by, oh, it's gorgeous, Cam Kennedy. A stricken spaceship crashes into the ocean of an alien world, and its three fully suited crew are stranded without knowledge of where they are or the safety of the area around them, so they dare take their helmets off. 
They make landfall two nights later, but all of their equipment is ruined by the seawater, and from the wave a crab-like machine surfaces. The astronauts fire at it with their guns and fallot, and crashes down on top of them. In the morning, a human crew emerge from the experimental crab machine, and they themselves are waiting for a rescue, find the fallen space travellers half buried in the sand. Finding one, they remove its helmet's faceplate. It's an alien, and the planet is Earth! Ah! <laughs> oh, I remember this one really well. I, I remember this really getting to me as a kid, and I thought it was really cool. It's quite an eerie alien face, Cam Kennedy draws him, but it's almost... First time I saw it, I thought, oh, it's a three-eyed chimpanzee. But I think it's just the way that Kennedy sort of renders wrinkles and things. It's not mm. necessarily that simian, but yeah, it's, it's a stonker. And, you know, his his usual beautiful squat spaceships and... Oh, yeah. No. Uh, not to underplay Kennedy's art, because it does elevate everything. Mm-hmm. The alien dialogue is just quite convivial. You know, it's it's the most... Folksy. Folksy written discussion that you could imagine three guys having, which really sells the idea that, yes, there are humans in the spacesuits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the, that's the bluff, the red herring. No, no, they got squashed by the red herring. Yeah. <laughs> But speaking of stories saved by Kennedy Art, Peter. Mmm, ha ha ha, yes. Dandere, Prisoners in Space. Mm. Story by Tom Tully, question mark. Art by Ian Kennedy. <laughs> Issue 104, the villainous Mekon makes a spot inspection of the mysterious Operation Birth Facility. And we get a tantalising glimpse of rows and rows of suspicious-looking tanks. But before we can learn much else, Lord Baynor arrives and gives the Green Menace a bollocking for visiting the project unannounced. The Mekon grovels, but it grates him, so he has Dan Deere dragged in for a medicinal gloat and obligatory showing off of his plans while his enemy is in his power. That's good scripting. I like that. There's one thing a bully can't stand, it's being abased by someone other than themselves, and so the natural instinct is to abase somebody else. Hmm. And, and it, it, it brings Dan into this otherwise very damned story. Of course. <laughs> then Dan and the investigator crew are dragged to the alien stadium where they are forced to watch a party of captured space marines armed with only spears take on the Grenzorian, the giant lizard-like creature with scaly, a scaly armored hide and gigantic teeth. Oh, I like that frog. <laughs> the battle. The battle seems deadly and one-sided. <laughs> <laughs> and should be in colour, dammit. Well, hold on for a week and the, it takes the cover. Yeah. But meanwhile, out in space, Robo-1 jettisons himself from the Magpie space frigate, hoping to crash land on the planet below. Space Weeble away! Yep, pretty much. Issue 105, back in the arena, the Grenzorian is making mincemeat of the space marines, so Dan leaps into action taking out their squid giraffe guard, turning its weapon on Baino and the Mekon in the royal box. But with a wave of his tentacular hand, Baino activates the electrical circuits in Dan's space handcuffs and electrocutes our hero. Mm. The torture continues long enough for the bad guys to miss the end of the arena fight, where the Grinzorian has killed all in its path, and next time there will have to be even more humans set against it. Ah, these guys. These guys. Are you getting a little bit tired of the arena shenanigans? I'm hearing the Kirk, the Star Trek arena music. Dan is dragged back to the cells, but the torture may have been too much for him because the next cover page screams, Dan Deer must be dead! Until an alien zaps him with a wake up jolt and he's not. We cut away to the Mekon and Boehner discussing Operation Birth and discover the Mekon is closing 10,000 copies of the evil alien overlord Boehner. What could possibly go wrong? Uh-huh. Trust me, says the Mekon. Trust me. The weeks go by. <laughs> All the while, a remarkably intact Robo-1 crash lands were the bounce, entangles with alien lifeforms and pole vaults over a security fence and plays skittles with alien guards. Then, an issue 107, a suitably recovered Dan, ooh, what a difference a week makes, mm. is dragged off on a spinning plate of doom transporter to see Banor's armies awaken in Operation Birth, an army to conquer the universe. A week goes by, Dave, and Dare is still clean-shaven. 
a week goes by between issues. My, my comment was was more that one week he's on the verge of death, and then, as if by magic, the plot requires him to be bouncing around on bizarre alien spacecraft. I think it's actually in the captions. Oh, really? Yep. It says the weeks go by, and my note is they're growing up so fast. Well, maybe he's able to shave with it. Maybe he electrocutes those handcuffs and rubs them against his face. Maybe the handcuffs gave him electrolysis. No hair whatsoever. <laughs> Anywhere. Good grief, that's brief. <laughs> Operation Birth. Um, <laughs> but as the tanks open, Tomb of the Cybermen style, we find they are full of queens. <laughs> 10,000 double crosses. Banor turns on the Mekon, but is gunned down where he stands. Next time. Is this the end for Lord Banor? Hope so. <laughs> Spoilers. Yes. <laughs> ah, Banor gets his. Fairly solid workmanlike dandy affair. And yeah, I think we saw the double cross coming. Yeah, yeah. We've just been marking time all this time. It lacks a bit it lacks a bit of sparkle in the alien world. It's it's all a bit cartoony. And as you say, time passes in captions rather quickly. Man, it would have been awesome to have had that as painted Kennedy artwork. Definitely. The Grinzorian would have been epic. Yeah, it would have, yes. But speaking about the unstoppable progress of time, Peter. Mm, the unstoppable. Regular features. Cue <laughs> <laughs> music. Some very nice Ian Kennedy deer covers. We've got a gloating Mekon looking out at the reader from the Operation Birth Base. Mm. We've got the Grinzorian attacking in colour, which is pretty cool. There's the Dandera is Dead Hyperbola for issue 106. But my pick is actually issue 107, Lord Baynor in close-up, waiting for his army to awaken, glaring at the page. It's just as well we've got that because issue 107, we're not covering it in this episode, but an old favourite comes back, and frankly, damn it, old favourites coming back deserves the front cover. Yes, dear listener, we are fiddling the books a bit, so yes, you'll streetwise ends a week early, and you'll see what happens next time. Yes. We'll fix it all in post. Yes. In fact, you know, even besides that, I think maybe Mannix deserved a front cover for this month. But we'll get to that too. Yes. Regular features. I can't delay it anymore. In issue 104, Dave Hunt calls for viewer choices. What's your favourite story? It's time to uh, do a quick damage assessment, I think. <laughs> well, inside issue 104, there's a small article about stranded lighthouse keepers who have been isolated for a record 33 days. 33 days, bar humbug. Yes. <laughs> have you seen the lighthouse today? There's a picture in the, the magazine, but we could post a link. I'm meaning the movie with Willem Dafoe and Robert Pattinson. Oh, no, I was, actually, I was actually going to make a reference to the goodies episode. Oh, right. Yeah, that's that's much less sanity taxing. <laughs> Luck of the Draw has a Danny Pike strike by Robert Ryland of South Croydon. Yep, copy that. Oh, yeah, but, you know, it's Danny Pike. So, yeah. yeah, well, if you're going to copy, copy the best. Yeah. Speaking of copying out, there's a very black and white ad for Rice Krispies advertising free crayons which you can use to colour your comic in with. Fair enough because we're going to give the colour back cover to Max. And fair enough too. But my ad of the month is Scream, issues one and three. Finally, we've entered the Scream zone. Yes. But my number two ad of the month is Alvin Sharkey's Sharpo Razors. Uh, my ad of the month was Freestyle BMX magazine. It's radical action at its best. I did actually note that down for your attention, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> so wanted to be in these mics. That's in issue 105, which also has a wee article on David Attenborough. He looks so young. Well, it's for The Living Planet, which I remember that being the most amazing documentary series ever to be released. That would have been after Life on Earth, which was previously the most amazing documentary series ever made. It, it is, but since Living Planet's been made, apparently the state of the world ecosystem has got desperately worse so maybe we shouldn't be celebrating that too much no no but speaking of things tv issue 106 has a small article on captain zip space detective Hmm. which for years all i ever knew about it was that photo and i was always intrigued by what it was until doing research for this this issue i went and googled it and looked at it on youtube yeah (laughs) (laughs) you've not bookmarked that page i take it no you remember criminal of the star call um, I think that was always in my mind when I read the mention of Captain Zip, like yeah, you. Yeah. It doesn't have the same production standards. Oh as, my as god, because that, that's what I mentally put together. Mm. Uh, and somewhere in there I threw in sort of Dash Decent from 2018 and thought, yeah, they're basically going for all of this. Yep. Oh, 
issue 107, Reader Art. Here's another Mekon and a Jedi Speeder. Have we seen a Jedi Speeder before? I have a feeling oh, we have. Bike. Speed bike, yeah. yeah. I, can't, I can remember them being very cool, but no, hmm. I can't. Issue 107 has another back cover scan, and it's for new series Brothers. Hooray! Hey, which we'll get to in a bit. Issue 107 also has an ad for a free Action Man sticker album. Action Man. For once, we regret overseas readers are not able to share in this scheme. That's all right. Who needs Action Man when you have the most dangerous, finger quotes, man, finger quotes, <laughs> in the world? That's the strap line for Maddox. Maddox. Scriptology by Keith Law, which is uh, Alan Grant, and art by Carbona. So Maddox is still in enemy hands, captured and reprogrammed by the terrorist network Smog, and seemingly bent to their will capturing and scuppering the bullion ship Ekatrench, but unbeknownst to his new masters, ensuring the survival of nearly every man on board. The ones that you didn't shoot. Yes. <laughs> By stranding it on Snacker's Bar. A Snacker's Bar, of course. <laughs> ah, you're ugly when you're angry. They are rescued, and Mannix's boss, Sir Orville, takes control of the situation with a media blackout, but realising Mannix's best is still not good enough for Britain, draws up plans. Meanwhile, Mannix gets a tongue lashing and new orders from smoghead Gretel Herzog. You will select, I imagine she's Jim, you will select individual targets, inflict maximum damage, and bring Blight to her knees. Over the next couple of days, Mannix unleashes hell, poisoned diplomats, collapsed road tunnels, flaming oil rigs. A new political pressure group, the 1984 Group, emerges, and O's newest boffin, Molesworth, tells his boss something must be done. Okay, two things. Yeah. 1984 group mm. doesn't sound ominous at all. Well, it's 1984, but yeah, yeah, all And hello, Molesworth. <laughs> yeah, Jobsworth could be just as much. <laughs> but you know, it's a real place. I mean, there's a Molesworth Street in Wellington. I'll say no more. Oh, okay. Very close to work. Um, tells his boss something must be done, but O is a step ahead. His techs have been busier than ever, and in his Whitehall basement, an equally powerful agent has been created. I knew Maddox! I'm so excited! <laughs> New Maddox is activated and reels off some Descartes before he's even on his bionic feet. Again. <laughs> and then goes off to perform some tests. Molesworth ducks away and makes a call to a Sir Humphrey, and over a scrambled line contacts his friends. In smog. Out on Melton Down, old Maddox Mark One must be thrilled at that name. Maddox Three <laughs> is stronger and lighter. His pants are even tighter. Back in the office. <laughs> Carry on. <laughs> Back in the office, he tells O, oh, bad Maddox's next target will be himself. Maddox Two will be after Maddox Three. Because O has a mole, and it's Molesworth. Molesworth enters and draws a gun and fires at O, but Mannix 3 deflects the bullet with an iron pectoral, ricocheting it back into the traitor's head. But Mannix is a known element, and smog will surely come. Over the next hour, new Mannix scouts the grounds outside, dismissing the human sentries. He'll face old Mannix alone. This should have been a cover day. <laughs> sure enough, the smog android leaps in and the two robots face off. Mannix 3 is faster and more powerful than his senior, and he has a complete face. And he nearly bests him before the old android agent makes a strategic withdrawal. The rogue, which is what they're calling him in this, breaks out and catches a nearby express train climbing onto its roof. New Mannix gives chase on foot. 80, 90, 100 miles per hour. Aboard the carriage below, a lad reads One-Eyed Jack. Unaware yes. of the real intrigue outside his carriage window. Put a pin in there. Yes. And catching up, Mannix 3's laser eyes change an oncoming signal from green to red, and the driver hits the brakes. Mannix gets the jump on the road, knocking him off the roof into a pile of workmen's tools. This wasn't old Mannix's pick. <laughs> uh, impaled and his circuits damaged, old Mannix watches as his successor closes in. Next week deprogramming a robot Whew. wow <laughs> you got him that is a really uh, action kimonos art really gives the robot punch up a bit of grit and a bit of bite it is great i mean we we sort of we indulged project waldo back in the photo strip days mm. but this is how you do robots versus robots yeah we don't have to einstein it 
No, they're not quite to the point where they're sort of ripping each other's circuits out, but oh, it's good. Yeah, just Peter, just a bit of trivia for you. Hmm. This must be the only Eagle strip that has a date in it because the kid is reading Eagle issue number 83 from the 22nd of October, 1983. So it must have happened within that week unless he's taking his collection on the train with him. Yes. To Hogwarts. Thank you very much. Yeah, I did wonder whether it was a genuine One-Eye Jack strip. It's not a strip. It's the star scan type picture Uh, that would have been on the back page. Gotcha, gotcha. Unless he's reading it in Valiant many years prior. No, no. (laughs) It's eagle. It's eagle. Tanks with license plates. Now, they would have got fuzzed out today. (laughs) You said tank with a license plate. Yeah, the tanks, Mannix throws a round of license plates on them. You can read them. Right. <laughs> OMG. Something like that. Yeah. <laughs> I've got a question for you, Dave. Which Mannix are you rooting for? It's Man- Mannix. <laughs> um, I, do- I don't really... I, do- I know how this ends, Peter. <laughs> okay, but I don't. And and so it's really interesting. I mean, we're, we're sort of feel inclined to say new Mannix is all good. So old Mannix has to go, but... Just going back about a month's worth of strips, and I know that Old Mannix was already sort of turning coat. I think the, the Old Mannix's turning coat is more of a, a cry for help and to be stopped mm, mm. than okay. a, a, a moral imperative that he's going to become a goodie again. But the other thing to remember is, you know, these are Mannix 2 and 3. It's not like Doomlord 2 and 3, where there's sort of some sort of moral mm. imperative behind yeah. each of them. They're, True. They are utilities. Sorry. Way to diffuse all of the drama out of, out of conflict. Sorry, well, I don't know. No. I mean, the, the conflict is what will happen as a result of the fight. But yeah. I don't have character investment in the the Mannixes. Because mm. at the flick of the switch, O's probably got a whole stack of them in his basement. Oh, you see, that's... Uh, boo. Boo. <laughs> boo. But <sighs> speaking of amoral forces of the law, Peter, mm. it's time for our partially peepered policeman... Punishing perps with prejudice. Oof. It's one I jack. Pew! Story by John Wagner, maybe? Mm. Art by John Cooper. But more on that later. Yeah. We start our adventures with Jack working his way through the key policing art of negotiation as he talks a young lady jumper off a ledge by painting a big X on the road below her so she can aim for a target and let everyone get on with their day. Sweet. Bedside manner, it ain't. The scared straight approach seems to work and the young woman is hauled in, but not before Jack hauls her over his knee and paddles her backside as a lesson. Mm. Uh, do we need the 80s alarm? Do we need the 70s alarm? No. How about the 60s alarm? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. But while the crowd was watching the 70s sexist spectacle, someone has robbed a nearby jewellery store and playing a hunch and foreshadowing social media data mining by 40 years, Jack gets info on the young jumper's boyfriend and raids his flat, where the young hood and his friends are conveniently decked out in all the stolen bling. Clearly not a young lady's jumper. <laughs> After the two-fisted apprehension, the crims are taken back to the precinct, but at the, then the girl returns with a bag full of explosive and wants her boyfriend freed, and one-eyed Jack McBain as a hostage. Jack is handcuffed, but not down, and after two-footed foot fight, Jack boots the young lady in the rear and kicks the boyfriend out through the window. Uh, the lovebirds are now jailbirds. How much does McBain have to crunch to be able to lift a grown man with his legs? Well, you know, scientifically momentum, if the man's running for him, you only have to lever him. And, but you know, he, you're not like you're pushing him too high because so the windows are going to be about waist height. So if you're lying on your back, your feet will be up there. Yeah. So he's levered him over his head, not back. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, no. I still think he must have abs of steel. Probably deflect bullets. Manic style. But it's three pages. Look at look at that Crow Street in Amster. Three pages. Yeah, yeah. Run and done. Yeah. In issue 105, it's the start of a two-parter, which is one more part than Jack has eyes. And Ooh. we begin with a quiet day at the police firing range. But what's this? One of the targets has been vandalised, painted up to look like Jack, with an added target over his one remaining eye, and a note saying someone is gunning for his remaining peeper. While the other officers write this off as a hoax, Jack isn't so sure and reviews all his old cases to see if anyone might have a grudge against him. Oh, that's going to take more than a day. (laughs) Much searching later, it turns out all of them do. Yes. While Jack and sidekick Willie Novak review the case notes, a sniper from across the street guns down a uniformed policeman standing next to them. 
Storming the rooftop eerie, they find nothing but a spent cartridge and another defaced photo of McVeigh. Stepping up inquiries is no help, until Novak gets a call saying they've found something at the firing range. But this is a trap, and waiting for them is a mysterious figure with a scattergun, which is basically a shotgun with a different name, I think. It's also a plot device. Jack throws himself clear, but Willie catches some of the blast in the face as the gunman escapes. Later in hospital, an injured Willie has recovered enough to identify the gunman, Tony Van Cleef. Where do they get these names, Peter? Very Wagnerian name. Yeah, I mean, Wagnerian name, sorry. We get a flashback to Jack's biocular days as a beat cop, where he confronted a bank robber in an airport without a rattle. Mm. Young McBain disarms Van Cleef by shooting his hand out of the gun. Whoops. And Van Cleef is sentenced to 20 years with a metal mitt as a replacement. McBain leaves Willie Novak at the hospital, but a nearby rookie cop is gunned down while directing traffic. The scene is searched, but all they find is a Chekhov brand night sight. Tired of games, Jack sends a message through the Times Square lights, and a showdown is arranged on a nearby roof. But when Jack arrives, he discovers Van Cleef is an eagle reader, and has stolen Jack's user dummy trick. Van Cleef is actually set up on another rooftop and starts sniping at him. Suddenly it's a dirty trick, I see. Out comes Chekhov's night sight and Jack guns down Van Cleef, sending him falling onto some power lines below. <laughs> Van Cleef's vengeance has shorted out. He catches fire. And we see him catch fire. It's grim. But speaking of bad cop movie quips, Peter. Yes. In issue 107, One-Eyed Jack gets very meta as this dirty Harry knockoff becomes a police consultant for a crime thriller. Mm. Jack takes a quick break from critiquing the Leeds gunslinging skills to pistol whip a pit pocket in The Watching Crowd, just to prove you don't need to wave it round like a hose. <laughs> Soon after, there is a scene with a helicopter flying in to carry out an audacious bank robbery, but McBay notices the lead actor's gunplay has improved considerably, and he's now left-handed. Hang on! This robbery is real! Jack grabs one of the helicopter skids as the villains make their getaway. And after some high-octane, high-altitude antics, Jack brings the chopper down in the East River. So all the bank's money must be getting rather wet. It would make a great film, but Jack is scared of film cameras. And copyright infringement, probably. <laughs> Next time, One-Eyed Jack quits the force. I wonder whether the actor is based on Tom Cruise, because what other actor would do their own stunts? Mm, I don't know. But when I Jack quits the force is also when Valiant quits into battle and Wagner quits the strip. Yeah. I was wondering if that was coming around. In fact, you know, when um, Willie catches a faceful, I thought, ooh, isn't that one of these sort of triggery things that happens? There's definitely the start of cleaning some decks. Yeah. Quite a fun run of one I Jack stories. Slightly less crazy than some of the usual one I Jack fare. I don't know. I mean, having your bad guy fall off a building, hit some electrical wires, and then burst into flames, and presumably just cooking to death, it's pretty edgy. <laughs> Not like being kicked off a train and skewered on a pickaxe. Oh, come on, that's a robot. You can do anything to robots. They love it. Not like destroying a bridge and causing mass carnage. But, well, that was the Death Lords. Okay, all right, all right. Yeah, all right. They, they were bad. <laughs> okay. Definitely differently paced from most other strips in the comic book. Indeed. And so, we round things out. It's The Brothers. Story by Scott Goodall, art by Vanyu. At Finscale Hospital, 12-year-old Peter Trent is recovering from a car accident that killed his parents and turned his twin Bob into a gamma-radiated, holy ape-like creature. As the hospital's doctor towers over the stricken Bob in a sterile lab, Peter breaks out of his administration holding room and bursts in just as his brother calls to him. Hammond, the head doctor, tries to warn Peter off Bob due to the gamma radiation. A desperate Bob thrashes about, but Peter is pulled away by Hammond and the suspicious Dr. Lewis. Acting quickly, Peter grabs a fire extinguisher and lets rip, medical staff slipping everywhere on the erupting phone. As his brother's urging, Bob breaks through his straps and the two boys escape the room. Through the kitchen, no stakes harmed this time, down the stairs to the basement and shelter from the chaos above. Peter, Bob's scared. Bob's going Peter like Katniss Everdeen on her hypnol. <laughs> I'm scared too, but at least we're together again. Ah, just the two of us against the whole world. Next episode, upstairs the heads of the department have an ad hoc meeting in the boardroom, and the bearded hospital head demands the boys be found. 
decision making. If this affair goes any further, there will be the biggest hue and cry this country has ever seen. Though this guy's obviously not a Doom Lord reader. No. <laughs> Hearing the orderly prowling outside the storage room hidey hole, Peter and Bob look for a way out, but they're in the basement. Bob uses his new simian abilities instead to climb to the shelf tops where he peers the shocked orderly as he enters and clubs him unconscious. Donning scrubs, they make a run for it, and they very nearly make it as the shortest, hairiest medical professionals you ever did see. <laughs> they nearly make it, until an orderly notices the passing doctor's furry monkey feet. Run, Bob! <laughs> they get up the stairs. Doogie Howser, the pubescent ears. Yes. But they're now well above ground floor, uh, and they're cornered with only a window as their escape. Bob leaps Peter on his back, so that's a monkey with the fan on his back. Anyway. And swinging off a flagstaff, they make it into a nearby tree, shinny down it, and head towards the hospital gates. Next week, the twins become public enemies. Numbers one and two. And that's the brothers. Peter, how long does it take to get out of a hospital? Well, if you're just there for the day, um, <laughs> it can be hours before someone sees you with a clipboard. I mean, it's, it's not like it's House of Correction, but, you know, Terror of the Cats did it quicker than this. If you've had a baby, they can't wait to get you out of the hospital. Well, yes, that's true. Yes. They need the bed. But no, um, I don't know. They're kids. Yeah, I know. I, it's just, there's a slightly different pacing to this whole this one. It, yeah. It's a character piece, Peter. It's a character piece. Art question, though. Yeah. Is there a cameo by Nurse Ratchet from One Through Over the Cuckoo's Nest? Surely there has to be. Yeah. And when Peter bursts into the operating room, it looks like he's wearing invisible roller skates. Is it a callback to Streetwise, or is it because he's wearing slippers? <laughs> Photos on the Facebook page. Photos dearest. on the Facebook page, yep. <laughs> so. And with that climactic ending, Peter, mm. we have finished off the four weeks of March, early April for 1984. It's good to be back in the saddle. It really is. With that in mind, what mm. are your picks for best and worst? My pick for best strip this month has to be Mannix. I was engaged. Okay, cool. <laughs> sorry, sorry. No, no, I'll put no, no, okay. on that. I was engaged. Like, like I say, it was Project Waldo done right. Yep. Carmona's proving to be just an absolute asset to this. And frankly, Molesworth had what was coming because Carmona drew him. I didn't really describe it, but he drew him as the, the weasliest, self-satisfied prig I didn't spot it as a kid because it probably happened over three weeks. But reading it now, character arrives. Character is called Molesworth. Character mm. looks a bit shifty. I can see where this is going. Yes. <laughs> um, shout out also to Crow Street Crump. Quite liked it. There was a sense of sort of retreating old ground. It's almost sort of let's send the crew all on a holiday. Yeah. Although I do find it weird that the girls weren't invited on there i mean script wise there's no reason uh, to not oh, involve well, it, because it wouldn't be seemly peter if you're going on a mixed hiking trip with a, a secondary school you can write around that you can you can write around it and when we sort of go towards another sort of round of the let's pretend there's a ghost yeah they at least as i say they, they got a little bit more elaborate and it was a bit more fun it won't be a while before crow street go on holiday oh hang on <laughs> <laughs> um my bottom for this uh, it's going to be between Dare and Jack, and I Ooh, think it's okay. yeah, yeah, and I think probably it's um, Streetwise. Yeah. <laughs> you, you had me for a moment. <laughs> you had me there just for a sec. Yes, <laughs> that that is the last Streetwise, I believe, in the proper comic. Yes, I think he only. Uh, I did a wee bit of background reading too. He will appear in the. Specials, yes, somewhere along the track, yes, uh, for quite a wee way yet. Um, yep. but yeah, that's that's it for your weekly streetwise, your weekly wise, chicka chicka, chicka chicka. What were your tops and bottoms, Dave? Well, um, uh, your bottom's not going to be a surprise. Um, don't yeah. get me wrong, it's it's not a bad streetwise story, just without the chance to poke fun at the focus strip, it's mm. rather flat. And sorry, the art doesn't help, everything else is lifted by its art. It's funny, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, we haven't had a chance. Sorry, I'm, I'm I'm jumping in on this, but we haven't had a chance to really sort of play with, say, Joe Soap in mm. in illustrated form. Yes, I know we had a lot of fun with the photos, 
and I suspect that if it were ever properly illustrated as a full strip, I think it would lose something too. But of course, the the fun with Streetwise was a guilty pleasure. Mm. It was not supposed to be. Surely, <laughs> it was not supposed to be so ludicrous. But now, yeah, drawn straight, it's, it's a bit flat. Yeah, yeah. As for best, I found it a bit tricky this month. Nothing's really that bad. Even Amster is batting a bit above the average with two really good stories and two meh ones. Mm, mm. But I've got to think, it's got to be a news team. They're still fresh. There's only their second month in. And the, the volcano adventure is going to grab a young mind and go, yeah, volcano, flames, yay. Yeah, I don't know. And and it's Ortiz. So, yeah, you know, I'm, not, I'm not trying to suggest there's anything wrong with anything else, but... That was my what, what I came to pick. Apart from the dodgy science, I think I could forgive it. <laughs> a natural disaster. We're not into the era of um, storm chasing. No. Yet, which I think I think you'll probably be seeing something more of that if it was done in this day and age. Yeah, volcano. Every strip needs a volcano. It was topical. Yeah. But next time, dear listener. Manix's robot versus robot comes to a conclusion. It's a bad day for Boehner as Dan Deere heats up. We bid a welcome back to a beloved favourite. Crow Street have a summer holiday. And more about that beloved favourite. <laughs> it's Doom Lord. <laughs> Hooray! One Night Jack goes rogue. And Doom Lord. And Doom Lord. <laughs> Hurrah. <laughs> We've been We're Eagles, dear. You can find us on SoundCloud. You can find us on iTunes. You can probably find us all over the internet in various places we don't know we exist. We have a Facebook page where we post all the images that we poke fun at. And we are contactable at sofageddon at gmail.com, which we sometimes even check. And we tweet. Yes, at sofageddon. Why not drop us a line on Twitter? Promise I'll read it. Because then you'll be tweet-wise. Chicka-chicka. Chicka-chicka. That was bad. That was very, very bad. <laughs> so until then, please stay safe and well. It's good night from me. And it's a very good night from me. Good night. Good night. Good night.